Thanks to everybody who supported the show this week via Patreon, including Dan Lane, Alistair Harding, Ian Wilkinson, Matt Lacey, Tim Edwards, Ilya Coelia, Roland Robertson, Jamie Holland. If you'd like to support the show from $1 per episode, go to 361podcast.com slash support. Hello. Yo. Hello, Rafe Blanford. Hello. You're looking quite crisp. What device are you talking to us on? Uh, MacBook Pro. Are you using the internal camera? Yep. It's just because he's given a clean. In which case, your end, you might need to... What? Yours is discernibly murkier. Well, thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. Right then. Shall we do some clapping? Three, two... (laughs) <laughs> so predictable. <laughs> oh, it's the small things. It's the small things. <laughs> Mark, just cut everybody else out of this podcast. It's a monologue this week, and it's just me. Hello and welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile tech and the world around it. My name's Rafe Blanford. My name's Ben Smith. And I'm Ewan McClark. This is season 18, episode 6, and this week we're talking about customising the Apple Watch, LG's Indiegogo experiment, and who has the oldest digital data in their archive. Gents, Rafe Blanford, you're looking sparkling and vivid this evening. I always try and look sparkling and vivid, but good evening, Ben. It's a pleasure to see you and to hear you. Oh, so slick and professional, you're McLeod. See, aren't you proud of him? Do you remember all those years ago when you didn't believe that you could have the executive chat just off the I cuff know. like that? See, it's really good. It's completely instinctive now. He used to just say, hello. Yeah. yeah, very quietly. He used to be a lovely chap, but now, now he's an executive. Although I feel we've brought you on as well, because like, <laughs> we, we've brought you on. I'd say hello to you, and you'd be like, what's the business value of talking to you? Why are you here? Thank what's you. What's the point Thank of you. you? State your reason for existing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hello, how are you, Ben? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Because you complained previous weeks, I've shut the curtains and turned the lights on. It's slightly prematurely here. It's not dark in the UK, but it will mm. be by the time we finish recording. And... um well, I've accidentally uh, sealed myself into an airtight world's hottest room. So if I expire in the next 45 minutes, just because it's mainly heat exhaustion, to be honest. And you still have the silky smooth delivery. <sighs> Buttery smooth. Buttery smooth. That's what Mark's doing. If he turns the filters off, all right, I love you. <laughs> um, Rafe, the uh, flowers behind you are looking lovely. Uh, Rafe Blanford increasingly looking like Kew Gardens. Mm. Shay Blanford. Yeah. Well, um, now that we're well into lockdown, I need some greenery to remember what it actually looks like. So I went to the supermarket and actually got some bargain flowers for about a pound. They were selling off and they recovered nicely. But I also ordered some things from Patch Plants, which is kind of one of these, I guess you could say it's a startup, but it's an e-retailer specialising in indoor plants. And they've done a nice job curating it for Londoners who want to make their flats or homes look a bit green. And they've given some of the plants some funky names. And I I really want to send an email saying, can you not just use the Latin name of the plant that I could recognise what it was? Oh, come on. But instead they've called it Boris or Sid. Come on. Are you serious? Yes, I am. There you go. Blanford, the only person in the world who would only know the Latin name. Well, it's like they've got an aloe vera and they called it something like Toby. It's like, surely you just call it Vera. But anyway. There's probably a sound reason why you and I are not working in a plant startup, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not the biggest problem I've got right now, but it was definitely at the back of my mind. <laughs> And then their customer service, when they 
delivered the wrong size flower pot. That was a bit irritating. But otherwise, I can actually thoroughly recommend. Well, I'm going to do a test here. Yeah. We'll link them up in the show notes. Blanford, here we go. What is Anthurium clarinervium? What does it look like without Googling it? Anthurium clarinervium. clarinervium. It's got leaves. That, okay, yeah, that's most plants tend to, and I can tell you that. Go on. What's Anthurium clarinervium, Mr. I'd rather have the Latin. All our native Latin speakers are going to be falling off their chairs at your pronunciation. Yeah, I'm struggling with that also. It doesn't sound like It's that. clear, actually. It's a clear. There we go. And it's, uh, it's green with kind of yellow little bits in it. There ah, you go. Well, it's not a native species then, so I can't really compute that. So five minutes in and we're already well off topic. But yes, it's nice to see you, Raven. Your flowers are looking lovely. Good. Excellent. Uh, you, McLeod, any news from Muscat? Mm, uh, How's your basement room? You don't look like you've left since last week. Basement? No, it's not, no I'm in the north. It's, it's on the ground floor. Oh, okay. Uh, I haven't left that. Well, no, I have left. I've been to the shop for groceries. Otherwise, it's very hot outside. Really hot. I just went and did some recycling. And it was 38 degrees outside. It's nice down. The watch, Apple Watch tells me it's 33 outside. It's still quite hot. The um, great intrigue, Shay Smith, and this is not a joking matter. I'm, I'm being deadly serious about this. My neighbour has disappeared. Oh, yes. It's been on the news and everything. He's a chap in his 40s who went out for a, uh, a run. He's a keen runner and just didn't come back. Whoa. And we've had search and rescue and police and helicopters and drones and all that kind of stuff. Did you check your shed? Well, not only did I check my own shed, but a man in a bright orange vest came and checked it for me as well. Turns out he is a diplomat. He he's, uh, lives about 10 doors down from us. But I wonder if there's some element of the extra sort of effort to try and find him. But um, we won't talk about it on today's show, but it was really fascinating that he appears to perhaps have not had a phone and the amount of kit that the emergency service showed up with and were able to deploy, you know, out the back of a Land Rover was amazing. So we might have a bit of a chat about that in future weeks. But he didn't have a phone. He went out without a phone or doesn't have a phone. Well, they haven't been able to locate him with it. I mean, obviously, I'm not privy to the details of the search. I was sort of focusing on the other side of things, which is the amount of resources that can be brought to bear when you want to find people with good reason, you know. Yes. And that kind of stuff, because mm. all of a sudden, they knocked on my door and said, oh, you know, see, you've got an Arlo camera stuck up in the porch. Yeah, have you got any? Yeah, yeah. You know, you got any video footage? Because he ran past our house when he was last seen. And uh, of course, for privacy reasons, I turn it all off and I don't record public areas and that kind of stuff. And I kind of had that moment of, oh, you know, maybe I should record everything all the time because it might be beneficial. But of course, you know, you could have the conversation the other way. So, wow. Mm. Yeah, that's the intrigue at our end. Um, we'll talk about that in a future episode. But it just um, struck me this week that every so often, total surveillance seems like a great idea just to try and help this guy or potentially or this family mm. out. Yes, yes. Well, I hope we're, okay. Yeah. So, moving on jarringly from uh, quite a sad topic. Very quick little bit of correspondence. Two things. We're not going to talk about either of them in today's show, but I just wanted to acknowledge that they'd come in. And if people had opinions or questions about them, write in now, 361podcast.com. A chap's written in, and I'm sorry I've forgotten your name, but we'll credit you when we do it, asking why we haven't covered Chromebooks recently. It's an entirely good point. Could I stop you there? Sorry to be pedantic. A chap. A chap. A chap. And sorry, I don't, we, we are in a connected world here. And the, so an individual has written in, and you don't I can't remember his name, like, and I can't remember if he DM'd me on Twitter or if he wrote in uh, a comment <laughs> or an email. I just don't have the wherewithal to find it while we're talking. Right, right, okay. Just point of order, I thought we should know this per chaps. 
It's a man, is it? It's a meal. It's, it's, it's definitely a chap. Okay. And I will find his message because he had a specific question about Chromebook right. laptops and we'll definitely answer Just it. Just asking. But if you're using Chromebook... <laughs> if you're listening... Yeah. If you're... Sorry, go on. If you're, go on. Listening. if you're listening and you wrote into us about Chromebooks and you are a man, <laughs> we're probably talking about your topic. Thanks, Ian. All right, sorry. So what I want to say is if you're a, if you're a frequent Chromebook user or if you've got strong opinions about it, let us know because we haven't talked about Chromebooks in ages. So later in the season, we'll come back and we'll have a look at that topic. We'd love any comments or questions to make an episode out of that. And one or two people who know that I'm still sort of peddling about in smart home world have been on to complain about Wise <laughs> Smart Home, which has gone subscription only with very, oh. very short notice oh dear. and has upset a lot of users. Again, I wasn't a user, but we'll come back to that later in the season and we'll have a bit of a look at that in terms of which ecosystems should you put your time and effort into that aren't going to then suddenly try and, you know, either charge you an arm and a leg for things you could already do or um, go away through lack of investment. So, yep, two bits of correspondence there. Uh, follow-ups, gentlemen. I just wanted to do a quick victory lap. Yeah. So, previous episodes, I talked to you about my coax adapters. Oh, yes. Tell us about it. Let's go coax. Okay. Mocha. 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 So, mm. for the uninitiated, Mocha is a standard that lets you run an IP connection over a bit of coaxial cable. That matters because quite a lot of us have coaxial cable in our houses. It's the thing that we plug our satellite and cable TV systems into. whoop de doo So far, so good. I need some internet in my new home office. No cabling, no wherewithal to put cabling in without knocking holes in the wall. I have a TV point. Hooray! I bought a mocker adapter and that was great. It worked and I'm talking to you on it right now. But it was slow. It was only 100 megabits. And mm. I really didn't want to do time machine backups and video calls at the same time over a 100 megabit connection because I thought that I could very quickly get it saturated. So did a bit of hunting around. And in the UK, that's it. Nothing. Nothing's doing. I've got the best products that Amazon Co. UK sell. So did some hunting around and found that in the States, there's a much more vibrant set of products for using Mocha because it's built into loads of people's cable modems and it's become quite a normal way to distribute uh, internet around your house. Found some and hooray, I've got very early gen Mocha adapters, but the new Mocha standard 2.5 gives you, drum roll, 2.5 gigabit speed connection. Wow. <gasps> Fantastic. And I thought, oh, well, I'm never going to waste money on getting a 2.5 gig connection. I'll just sort of find something in the middle. But actually, there's a company called GoCoax who sell those adapters. They're $60 each, which actually is cheaper than most of the other brands' lower spec adapters. So bought to imported from the States. They arrived last week, plugged them in, set them up, configured them up, and it just worked. Put two laptops at either end of this bit of satellite wire, one down in my downstairs cupboard next to my internet connection and where my Sky TV comes into the house, and one upstairs in the office. Hooray! Tested a gigabit connection because obviously my laptop only has a gigabit Ethernet port. Hmm. Really, really pleased with myself. Really pleased. Wired all the adapters in, got some US power adapters and all those kinds of things, got more wired in, and then took my storage device downstairs, chucked it in the cupboard to do my first backup so that it wasn't sitting under my desk making a grinding noise, you know, plugged in directly. Hmm. And it's only doing about 15, 20 megabits per second. But I've got like a gigabit connection. Oh, have I accidentally left the wireless on and just gone wireless? No. Hmm. Have I accidentally not plugged it in? No. Is it not working? Oh, no, it's all working fine. Go on. I just spent two weeks upgrading a connection to two gigabits when my NAS can only do 100 megabit. 
Oops. Uh, I hadn't thought to check how fast my old NAS went. <laughs> and it goes the same speed as the adapters I already had. Oh. So. Right, but you can be proud of the fact that you do have 2.5 gig somewhere in the house. Uh, so long story short, I'm going to use all the old adapters for the slow connections that don't matter. I'm going to keep the 2.5s on the office because it means I can have loads and loads of devices doing lots of connections simultaneously. It works amazingly well. I can't believe they're not selling them in the UK more because loads of us, I bet, Rafe, you've got satellite TV feeds going around your flat, even in central London, where lots of the properties have been modernised recently. There's still those in preference to Ethernet in a lot of cases. These are brilliant. And like I say, 60 US dollars with a few import fees, absolutely brilliant. I'll write it up rather than bang on about it on the podcast, but I'm so chuffed with myself because talking to people on Twitter, Lots of other people had said, oh yeah, just use Powerline. But I tried Powerline and because of the way my electrics worked, I was getting barely 30 or 40 megabits a second on those. And that's fine, but actually that's not fast enough for what I wanted to do. So there you go. Sorry, I've spent too much time talking about Mocha again, but really chuffed. Can I just ask you, uh, right, how do I know these cables are connected? Like, oh, I know they're connected, but yeah, like where, where do you start? There's cables in this particular room, there's cables in the other room, there's cables upstairs. Do I just plug in and it'll work? Well, so in my house, I went to the wall socket in the bedroom and plugged in one adapter, then went downstairs to the point where the aerial comes into the house, where the satellite TV feed comes into the house. And, you know, out of the wall were labelled bedroom one, bedroom two, kitchen, you know, all the various places. And I just plugged the adapter in either end. So Okay, right. Yes. Yes. You can, if you want to, plug it in and have your TV signal and your mocha internet connection all over the same wire at the same time. But I'm simply saying, I wasn't plugging a TV into there anyway, so just find you know, two ends of unconnected wire and plug it in. Because I'm interested in buying, you see, so if you don't mind, do I get two of these coax boxes, one for each end? Yes, you Fine. need one for each end. Think of them like power line plugs. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, I think that might need to happen. Yep, they're really good, and I've been really surprised how well they've worked. And the nice thing is that because I'm not using that wire for anything else, it's not like Powerline where it says it could be up to a gigabit and then you plug it in and it's 40 megabits because mm. you've got a power breaker and you've got a noisy charger plugged in. And yeah, yeah. In the way I've been able to use them, I'm getting the full wax speed. Okay, we should move on really quickly. You wanted to talk about You Need a Budget, which I mentioned last week. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I need to do a lot of inventing. No, my Ben Smith-ometer, right? You know, they, <laughs> whatever he buys, just go and buy it. It's being tested a little bit here because I did what you did uh, with TikTok. Mm-hmm. I actually used You Need a Budget YNAB on the web. Yeah, that's the right way to do it. Well, I couldn't easily find how you changed the account into the UK. It, well, I, I changed the account. It just didn't change. It's annoying. Tried to put American Express on. That didn't work. Oh, it's just annoying. So I was going through all of these different things. I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to file a complaint here with the Smith. This is not. Come on. But you've convinced me. I actually just deleted the account. Because you go and get YNAB, and then you have to get YNAB Sync because it doesn't work UK bank accounts properly. And, oh, I just want this stuff to work. And it didn't feel as though that now I need to do a lot of investment into budget management in the way that they do it. Because I couldn't see how do you put incoming money and I need to go and watch their videos. Now's not the time to try and explain how to use the tool. But what I'd say is that I looked around and I was so underwhelmed with money management tools that are built specifically for the UK, where you turn it on and it's in pounds and it's got a list of all the banks you recognise, yes, yes. that I kind of came to terms with the fact that, oh, I'm going to go and need to use a US service 
and therefore I'm going to need to be an edge case from the get-go yeah. because I want a really competent, you know, kind of performant, capable budgeting tool. And I mm. really like the way that you need a budget works. It's called the envelope method. It's been in existence well before computers because it literally was people putting cash in envelopes, you know, back in the day. But the approach still works. And because I was so sold on that and it worked for me when, you know, I knew I really needed to concentrate on budgeting a few years back when I was, you know, sort of you know, trying to buy the house and focusing on making sure that we had all the money we needed where we needed it to be. A lot of the things that you said, oh, they're a pain. I was like, oh, yeah, but like you have to do those. That's the cost of entry. Mm. And people in the US don't realise how lucky they are because all these tools just work. But um, yeah, we'll talk about it in a, another episode perhaps, but I would say if the cost of entry is too high, then find one that's UK-centric and give it a try and let me know because I didn't manage to find one that I liked. Rafe, do you have a budgeting tool that you like? Or you have a team that do this? I don't use one at the moment, but I've been thinking about following the Ben Smith advice, but now Ewan <laughs> has put me in a quandary because I'm not quite sure what to do. You have more than 30 seconds staying power though. <laughs> Thanks for that. This is true. And I, I was going to suggest that Ewan's kind of um, instant reward criteria was probably not met in this particular occasion, unlike uh, the vacuum cleaners, which he was able to charge up in a couple of hours. Oh, and then come on, don't paint me as a Neanderthal. I've got my Monzo <laughs> set up. I've got it doing the uh, web hooks. That's very nice. I have got the Barclay cars, the MBA, all this stuff is coming in. But now I need to go and learn this whole envelope method. Well, their method of doing it. You do need to do a little bit of learning, but actually I would say I think that's where it stops being a tech conversation and it starts to be a personal preference thing, mm. which is I spent weeks and weeks importing loads of transactions into stuff and having loads of data mm. and then it not doing anything for me. And all I'd done was some yak shaving. You know, I'd done pointless tasks and I felt busy, but I hadn't actually solved my problem. So, you know, that's why... I think you've got to move on past it. And that's why I was willing to put the extra effort in. But give it another week, try it out properly. I'll give you some help offline and then we'll come back and we'll do a proper 10 minute segment just on you need a budget. Good, good. Okay, let's crack on then because we're over time on this one. Quick shout out. If you're an Alexa nerd and you want to play with it, voice in a can, Google voice in a can. Somebody's built a load of standalone Alexa apps. I love it because I can have Alexa on my Mac now. That's good. I like that. We'll talk about it again in a future episode. But Very interesting. Obviously, you can build your own Alexa instances. It's a little bit limited, but uh, I'm playing with it and liking it. So voice in a can is what the app's called. Let's move on. I wanted to talk about Apple Watches. Hooray. Silence. Okay. Mild disinterest. Well, they just haven't released a new one yet. What are you using, by the way? I don't know what I'm on. I've got a cellular version yeah. 4. I had the original one, which was just yeah. Bluetooth only, and now I've got the cellular version 4. What have you got, Rafe? I've got the uh, Series 5, which is also cellular. Of course, yeah. I, th- I think I've got a Series 5, but it isn't cellular. I deliberately didn't get the cellular. I got the cellular because I was convinced that I would leave my phone at home and need to do things all the time, and I never, ever have. I think... It occasionally is useful when I'm the wrong side of the office and my phone is chirping out notifications, which I wouldn't have otherwise got, which are coming over the cellular connection. But then I'm often in Wi-Fi coverage and I think the watch will flip over to a Wi-Fi connection if it can't talk to your smartphone anyway. So I don't know. I mean, I mean, two minds about Wi-Fi is cellular, but I wanted to talk about WatchSmith. Have you heard about this app? I have, yes. Only on Twitter from you. I've been meaning to ask you, so go on. Well, so it tickled me for two reasons. One is because it's another way to spend hours infinitely fiddling with things to absolutely kind of get my watch kind of bespoke the way I wanted it. 
Go on. But also it kind of tickled me in as much as it uses the watch in the way that I think it ought to be used. So like earlier on, I spent a lot of time fiddling about with the Apple Watch, you know, using that silly circular menu where you can't remember where the apps are because yeah. they just seem to have been sort of vomited across the screen. <laughs> and you can never remember where they are. And then like any kind of physical interaction with the watch, because it's such a tiny screen, if you're not using the crown, the digital crown or the buttons, it's all a bit clumpy. But actually then in that case, you're just limited to a set of watch faces and they're a bit boring and this kind of stuff. So for the uninitiated, Watchsmith is an app that doesn't do anything, which sounds crazy. But what it does, its sole purpose is to let you have more complications on your Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. And complications, in this case, are the little gizmos in the corner of your watch face that say, you've walked 10,000 steps. Your next meeting's in three hours. You've done mm-hmm. five of your six habits today. Your train is 10 minutes late. All that kind of stuff. But the little spaces where apps can put little bits of data, like little widgets, and you know, apps can provide their own data. But what David Smith, the developer here, has done is he's made a whole bunch of custom widgets that are kind of a bit more pro, a bit more specialist, and you can customize them how you like. And in the app, you can say, I want this font, I want this color scheme, I want this data presented in this way. Mm. And the thing that I think is interesting, but I haven't got it working quite yet, but not only can you make these little complications, these little widgets, like bespoke your own widgets and then put them on your watch, you can say, in the morning, I want my transport app. And in the lunchtime, I want my calendar. And then in the evening time, I want the weather forecast yeah, for the next good. day. And you can set different configurations and say what time of the day the widget should show which, which information. Try saying that quickly. See, I, I like the idea. I, I would like to have the steps. Just show me the number of steps. Right? I don't have to click and da, 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 tap into it. Just show me the number of steps. So I presume you could do that. It's really interesting, actually, because I keep talking about it. I started running. I started tracking my steps. Have you been running? Actually, I haven't this week because I hurt myself. Uh, we well, need to talk about that. Arresting. <laughs> but it's really interesting because if you want the sort of the iconic three activity rings, Apple will show you, you know, like movement, exercise, and standing up or something and it's got these three rings that it shows you in yes. loads of different places and that's great and like apple don't believe in steps apple believe in measuring those three things instead fine lovely you know and if you're all apple watch that's great and they are useful but i want to know my steps because i was actively just tracking steps and sometimes do you remember when you and i were back at the bank we had a, a step competition didn't we it was like one of those oh yes yeah, right fitness things where yes. everyone had to walk as many steps as they could mm. So sometimes I want to know just steps, even though I accept it's not the best way to measure healthiness. And I couldn't get it because precisely as you're saying, like I couldn't just get it to show on the watch face. You know, yes. I'd have to go into the health app and go scroll, 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 scroll down, next, other, you know, expand, whatever. Yeah. And so, yep, on here, I've now got a widget that is just steps. I don't like it when it tells me the number because it's too big a number to fit comfortably in. So it's just a ring that's basically, if I want to do 10,000 a day, how many have I done? And I can look okay. and go, oh, I'm halfway, you know, I'm three quarters of the way. And it's great. And I've got the weather forecast in there. I've got some other bits and pieces in there. And I really like the fact that actually for me, and Rafe, I'm sure you're going to be able to do some sciencey stuff on this because no doubt, you know, you advise brands on this all the time. But I really like it because the watch is for passively consuming information. Like the most valuable thing about my watch when I'm at work is it's a clock that tells me when my next meeting is. And this now gives me a few more of those kind of flavors. 
yeah, I mean, I've been using this for a little while and I sort of did the classic thing of customizing a lot to start with, but actually it then, to your point, came back to kind of glanceability. That's the word. That's the word I should have used. Yeah. There we go. Exactly. See, he works in digital stuff. Glanceability. Carry on. For me, actually, there are different times of the day when information becomes useful and that next meeting thing is actually useful during the day to some extent but during the evening and early morning no i'd rather it show some information about my exercise or various other things and i quite like seeing information about i mean it sort of seems silly but uh sunset and that kind of thing and there's some astronomy functions built in but you can also when you're on holiday with the premium version you set it to things like tide times as well yeah. and sort of more sophisticated weather so when you're going on holiday and I, you know, like going to the coast being able to just see at a glance what the tide's doing when you're out walking is that it's kind of a small thing but it's information you then don't have to think about and you go oh yeah it's going to be great to go down on the beach tide's coming in or whatever and the more i've used an apple watch it is that glanceability but also notifications and it's probably the two things i use the watch for almost exclusively I don't really use apps on it in the sense that kind of Apple talked about a lot to begin with. Hmm. And notifications, the ones that are useful, enable you to take an action. And it's things like using it when you're doing multi-factor authentication, being able to just do it on your watch rather than having to pick up your phone, being able to do a quick reply to a, a WhatsApp message and things like that. And that with something like Watchsmith to kind of really ramp up that glanceability. And I mean, I don't know which style that you're using, but for me, Ben, Infograph Modular has been a recent switch for me because you just get more of the right information on it and the complications are a little bit bigger than on some things. So you can actually see things like your, you were talking about steps, for example. I've got that. It's funny you say that. As soon as I got Watchsmith, I moved onto the Infograph Modular watch face as well because it offers you four little widgety locations to customize. Actually, no, I think it might be five, isn't it? There's three circles across the bottom, a large one in the center and one up on the top left. And it's a watch face that only has, you know, about a quarter of the screen dedicated to the time and loads of different things. And I think if you're a frequent traveler, I mean, obviously not now, but you know, like if you're a frequent traveler or like us on Watchsmith, I really liked setting up one view that had East Coast, US, London and Denmark time along the bottom of my watch, you know, in these little complications, because regularly i was always going on my computer how what's the time difference i need to talk to ewan or i need to talk to a client in the states oh that's nice of you and i really liked that and you know that watch face gave me the space to do it the other one i quite liked rafe it was a bit of a joke when we went into lockdown initially i just had one i had the extra large watch face which just has one complication that's the whole face and it just had a hand that pointed to it's monday it's tuesday it's wednesday (laughs) (laughs) it felt like the only piece of information that was relevant but it's funny that that sort of thing, like actually just being able to instantly get the date, which on some watch faces is harder because you have to choose what you're going to do, especially if you want to have things like the exercise tracking as well. I'll give a tip that kind of harks back to a previous podcast. If you're out walking, having a compass that's easily accessible on your watch that you can just look at it is great for orientating yourself when you're looking at a map. And I've actually found the watch tends to be a little bit more reliable for that kind of direction finding. And I'm not quite going to admit to taking bearings and that kind of things. But when you're trying to work out which way to go in a field where it's a bit featureless, it can be very helpful indeed. It's definitely one of these things I you know, kind of talk about it before I've tried it. But one of the complications you can add through this app as well is a UV index. 
it just struck me immediately, particularly with young child. Next time we go on holidays, I'm sticking that up front on the watch face so that I can see the days when, you know, the sun is really high or whatever, and it would just be a really good reminder to slather him in sun cream and that kind of stuff. The other thing I was really interested in, and we're out of time, so you can just disagree with me and we can move on. David Smith is talking about moving on beyond these stock complications, which provide data that he's either sourced from his own information sources or that was already available to you to let you have these complications make calls out to your own APIs. Wow. So that if you're somebody who likes to sort of hack things together. That's cool. You could link it to if this, then that, or something like that to say, you know, is my smart home doing X or doing Y or have a button to turn my lights on and off and that kind of stuff. And it would let you have an element of customization. I've got one question. Are you both subscribers? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Did you pay the £20 or the £2 a month? I think I did the one-off thing because I just got giddy and was like, I need to give this man money. He's made a cool thing. And I actually don't think I need the subscription. Yeah. Yeah. I did the annual subscription. I don't need the subscription. I just think he's cool. And I really wanted to just sort of acknowledge that. Yeah. And you want to support him. Exactly. Okay. And to just finish off this Apple Watch conversation, we've been talking about something quite technical with the complications. It is worth saying the other way to get a refresh on the Apple Watch is you can get a new band. And actually, it's just noticeable that Apple have just released the kind of the pride watch face with the strap to go alongside it. And it's one of the things interesting about the Apple Watch. It's that fashion accessory. And if you tie these two things together, it can become quite a fresh product that gets updated just by a few small tweaks and the context and matching those things together. As for me, I've probably done more to customize the watch than I have ever done the iPhone, for example. Mm. And that kind of user behavior interests me. And it does come back to, it's always on my wrist. I need it to be glanced, but I need to do useful things for me. Ultimately, I still choose to have my phone over anything else. But it's been the thing that's probably adjusted having to look at the phone quite as much as I used to. Yeah, just for clarification, when we say complication, we don't mean, oh, it's hard. Complication is a watchmaking term for the additional dials and displays that are on, well, traditionally on analog watches alongside the hands that tell you the time. So you'd have sort of one complication might be a stopwatch or another complication might be the date or something like that. Okay, well, Ewan. Yes. Play with Watchsmith. Thoroughly recommend it. I will. You can spend a lot of time fiddling with it, but I think it's cool. And certainly I'm excited by what it will be next when I can have it, you know, do cool, hacky stuff. So next one up, Lenovo SmartFrame. Yawn. No, this is interesting. I wouldn't normally talk to you about Lenovo stuff or smart frames, but yeah. an article by approximate friend of the show, Chris Davis, over on Slash Gear. I'll link it up. Well, he is a friend of the show, right? He's not an approximate. Well, I, I don't think he knows he's a friend of the show. No, but he's a lovely man. And we, we have shared many times exactly. conversations and interactions with Chris, all of us. I think Chris has tolerated being in the same room as us for a number of occasions. Yes. Lovely man. Yeah. He has written on Slash Gear about the Lenovo smart frame. And I thought what was interesting here was the smart frame is a sort of photo display frame that hooks up to your photo albums and lets you have art around your house that cycles around and you you can upload new art. And I think there's a suggestion that you'll get both kind of the ability to load your own photos and also art that you can subscribe to. A couple of services have tried this. But what I thought was really cool, Ewan, was that they're sticking it on Indiegogo, Mm. which is not traditionally to raise money because this is normally where startups go to raise money so they can make their product but because they wanted to recruit a whole bunch of opinionated people who cared about these products as a kind of like an early user focus group i think it's a really interesting technique and i I don't think that they can't be the first to do this 
I'm sure I've seen other brands trying or playing with this. I just can't remember them. But this is a very smart tactic, I think, because it's getting people talking about it, first of all. And they're saying there in their press release that they're aiming to get dialogue, dialogue from the users. It looks like, for example, the frame is quite dark. You know, one of the first things I think my wife would be saying is, no, I want different types of frame, please. Frame colors. You know, I want white frames. They will get quite a lot of feedback, I think. And if you've got that, how does Lenovo, and it's a big, huge, big brand, doesn't have a problem marketing, but how does it get crowdsourced feedback quickly from lots of people who like the idea? And this is a great, great concept, I think, because I like this concept. I like it. I've already put my email address since you mentioned it, right? The minute that this goes live, I'll be on there talking and interacting with them. And they'll be able to have that dialogue with the early adopters. And those early adopters, yeah, I think when it's Lenovo, you can be pretty confident, one would hope, that they are going to deliver on time and they do know what they're doing with logistics and they can get this stuff out and it is going to be supported ongoing. So I think it's a smart move. So these are the first product, at least, is a 21.5-inch digital display. It's got a kind of a matte finish so that it's better for looking at artworks on rather than a a normal display that you'd have in front of you in a desk. Mm -hmm. It's got ambient light sensors that adjust the product can be rotated in situ so that you can choose whether you're going to have portrait or landscape views. And that's all really cool. But I think the interesting thing there is that a lot of the predecessors have been, as I said, startups. But the trouble is that they've built both the place the photos come from and the hardware and then have failed and sort of left behind this litany of hardware. And I now would be quite reticent to buy products like this because I think I'm going to be left with this sort of white elephant on my wall. You know, I'm going to go to all the trouble of hanging it up and making sure there's a power supply and not going to be supported you know yeah. getting the family okay with the idea that you know what photos should we put up there and all that kind of stuff and then it would just die hmm. i think this is really cool and it's funny actually you saying like you look at it and immediately have a reaction i think this is really interesting because i did too because i was like oh, you know that scene in i think it's back to the future one or two where Martin McFly's dad gets fired and all the images come down. It says, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And it's on the TV yes. and the fax machine spits it out in the microwave and that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great? Because like, you could have artwork around the house, but also important notifications or smart home things mm. could pop up on it. And it would be a good way to have passive awareness in the same way as I use the Echo Show in the kitchen to sort of pop up information yeah. on the screen. I thought, oh, that'd be really cool and far less cluttery to have devices down there. But of course, then you go down this rabbit hole of what if it could do this or what if it could do that? And so, yeah, you're like, yeah, I signed up immediately. I was mm. like, oh, I hope they pick me. <laughs> uh, Rafe, you must have had one of these art. I mean, like, this is your sweet spot. Isn't no, it? he's got a photo frame. You've got, is that a nest there behind you? It is. I mean, I've tried out various versions right back to, I think, Nokia had a product that you could send an MMS message to. Oh, yeah. Nokia. <laughs> Anyone remember them? <laughs> yeah. And then had sort of bigger versions, but like you, Ben, kind of, had the obsolescence problem and it was just a bit frustrating because frankly if you do something like that you kind of wanted to have a kind of life cycle of like 10 years or something Mm -hmm. because there's an investment in it so the whole thing appeals to me because like you I've kind of been surprised that in the smart home screens haven't taken off in a more meaningful way it's like use of television screens but then the thing is most of the time they're off and there hasn't been the technology to integrate to kind of turn them on to show you a notification And in all the kind of future films you see, you always see glass being used in various smart ways to show information, whether that's the window or something next to your bed as you wake up or the table counter or something like that. 
I wonder whether, you know, I would hope that this is something you could maybe put up a couple around the home. And as you say, have stuff pop up. Maybe I'm too optimistic about that. But I also think this is a way of accessing a certain segment of users is really interesting because you do get the kind of the passionate early adopters. That's the reason people browse on Indiegogo. And there's definitely an element of that in Kickstarter of wanting to try out new stuff and be part of the pilot. I know Philips did this with their PicoPix Max projector, which was kind of an HD, very small projector. And they right. raised something like 5 million quid on it and were able to get it out to 14,000 backers. And I think that acts as a focus group. And one of the things that is notable is you get multiple returns, you know, one campaign followed by another, followed by another from companies mm. kind of refining it. And the limited number go into the shops, but it's clearly possible to do that. And it's kind of interesting to see the big brands adopt and try out this process because I'm willing to bet like the cost of getting a pilot group or doing user testing exactly versus yes. like using Indiegogo to access yeah. that kind of, it'll be really interesting to see that. And it'd be interesting to see whether this is actually truly for kind of pilot or beta testing. Because I suspect some of the others, they've just been wanting to use it as a way to kind of effectively float a trial and see whether a product's actually viable or not before putting it through the full kind of logistics and sales channel and everything else. Because the data you get back from the number of sales and something like this is interesting. That said, Lenovo clearly have done products in this space before. So I think it probably is a genuine attempt to kind of recruit a certain type of user. And all three of us have got excited about it. And that kind of proves the point. Is there a risk here that us three get super excited about it? And something we didn't say as well, this is a 400 US dollar product, which would be probably something around $200, maybe between $200 and $400 for early backers. So there's an incentive to get involved early. But would the kind of needs that we've got Giddy excited about in terms of smart home and all the other kind of things it could do, all the other jobs it could do, drag it away from actually what the mass market would like, which is an easy way to get photos of little Johnny on grandma's wall. That's what we need to, you know, the moment they start listening too much to that early adopter geeky, you know, I want to see notifications, I want to see, then all of a sudden the cost of the device, the battery or however they're going to power it goes up. Because if I think about who I'm going to buy it for that's not me, I'm immediately like, ah, well, we bought iPads for grandparents. Yes, in that price bracket, yeah. So, well, but so that they could get access to a shared photo library that the whole family could put photos of the children on. It's become more things now, but particularly for my parents-in-law, who didn't really have much call to be on the internet. Otherwise, 50% of the iPad's job is to be a photo album. And I think, ah, this is it, because you get grandma Wi-Fi and you put this on her wall and then, you know, every month or something, you know, new photo of the grandchild pops up. I mean, I think that's always a danger when you're doing user testing, but one hopes that Lenovo would have the smarts to recognise, you know, use the feedback in the best way possible. But it's also probably a good warning. I mean, whenever you're doing that, user testing audiences are all important, actually recruiting people into the right segments. And when you're doing this, and it's kind of a classic principle of user-centric design, that you may have two different audience types represented or more than that sometimes. And I think Lenovo would need to take some of the feedback with a pinch of salt, but also decide like how much they're going after a certain type of user. Because I suspect the people willing to lay down this kind of cash probably do want some of the extra features. But it's a really interesting point. Like how many of those people are then going to buy it for granny or parents or friends? See, I think this is a crossover product into my wife's sphere. 
So the one challenge we had with these TVs, it's just normal TVs, is um, my wife said, no, 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 no. The only one I want is that frame one. The Samsung frame. She's read about the Samsung frame or Samsung other frame. She said, that looks like a photo. I'll have that. Okay, cool. Great. So we've got three of them now, two in the UK, one here. Now, they are really, really, really good. She loves them because you can change the frames, right? You got to pay £199 extra for the frames. Yeah. Because it comes with black frames. Yeah. And she said, no, no, I want white. Okay, fine. We've got that. And it's a really, really good TV. It doesn't do photos. I think you can probably put photos on it, but it's, it's not natively doing that. But I've subscribed. I pay the £2 or whatever it is a month for the art store. It's really good. And in the UK house, in the kind of kitchen living area, this big Samsung is there on the wall. And I really, really enjoy it. It's great quality. Really, really good because they designed it so it's always on, right? And it's got a little sensor. So it will go off if there's no activity in the room at all. But during the day, I've said it every 10 minutes, I want a new photo and it's fantastic, but it's not my photo. You can upload your own photos, but really I also want, and I think she will want that 21 inch. I think she'll want a lot of them around the house. If you can, on a regular basis, update the photos. So we use, like Blanford there, we've got these, uh, I've got loads of these Google Nest Hubs everywhere for the photos. And we use it primarily for Google Photos. So I think, you know, if you can actually put stuff on the wall properly and competently supported from a big brand, I reckon we would eat it up. I think we'd buy a lot. Yeah, I was excited about the idea, the fact it was finally a big firm doing it and that kind of Mm. stuff. And then I think the thing about the Indiegogo as well was actually the niche version of the product that's in my mind. Well, actually, if they can use Indiegogo as a kind of a gathering trough, you know, like a watering hole for all the nerds who would buy the nerd version, then actually some of those niche products, you might aggregate all those edge case, all those, you know, kind of enthusiast pro users, whatever, you know, together in a large enough group to make it worthwhile doing a version for them. Yeah. You know, because often I get the impression that actually Kickstarter is trying to sort of chip away at these sort of niche products sometimes. Hmm. Be interesting. We'll move on. But I was really excited about that. If you're interested, the link's in the show notes. It's definitely going to be a limited run before they release the products properly, but it's really interesting to see Lenovo go there. I wasn't aware of that Pico projector at all, Rafe, so that had sailed past me. But um, yeah, really, really big names now taking Indiegogo quite seriously, choosing not to build their own. Okay, last topic of the day then. and Yes, go on. A little bit of fun. I say fun. I mean, we'll let the listeners decide. <laughs> but I was in a conversation the other day where we were talking about being digital pack rats was the term that came up, basically squirreling every bit of data away as much as possible. Yeah, archive, 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 yeah. Yeah, because we've all got to the point now where storage is so cheap and sometimes it's so invisible because it's, you know, something like Gmail, it's just sort of built in and and it's not in your inbox, but it's your email still there, that actually we're all hoarding vast amounts of data. And so I was just curious, love the listeners to join this game as well, and uh, write in, let us know what you've got. But I wanted to just play a game. What's the oldest email you can access right now on the show, live, while we're doing it? Okay. Okay? Yeah. It doesn't have to be the oldest email you've got, but you know, an email client that you can log into, an app that you've got. I don't mean get me a backup from 10 years ago. I mean, literally, go in your mail client, go in your proper account, and what's the oldest email you've got? I'm looking at the uh, the video feed here to see who looks least prepared. Rafe Blanford. I have got one going back in Gmail to the 15th of August, 2007. 
which is probably oh. the one I can get to quickest and easiest. But there are a couple of webmail accounts that I still have access to that would take me back to uh, 1990s. And I'm just going to have to log in and see quite how far they go back. Just out of curiosity, what was the first thing Rafe Blanford discussed on Gmail in, uh, was it 2007, you said? It was an invitation to my dad's birthday party. Wow. How lovely. Right, well, you quickly go and hunt, see if there's any other webmail accounts. These, these webmail accounts, they're ones you still use? Uh, I would say I don't use them. I've still got access to them. And I do log in occasionally. Gosh, I should do. I should look at my Hotmail. You, yeah, jeez. Okay, so you're in McLeod. What's the- right, I shall check Hotmail. I'm sure I just deleted everything ages ago. On Gmail, no, I don't think this is entirely accurate because I have an email from a chap called Derek. And it's on the 23rd of December, 1993. Uh, that's in my Gmail. Yeah. But I think, I am voluntarily thinking, I think there might have been some corruption there because he is talking about a company that I used to own. And that was five years before the company was formed. So I think that's wrong. <laughs> Derek the time traveller. <laughs> yes. So the most accurate one I think I've got is actually two years later, and it's the 15th of March, 1995. Wow. From Matt. Chat called Matt. Now, that's in my Gmail. That's I've just used my, the before uh, function. Now I'm going to have a look in Outlook. So, uh, Ben, what, what's your, come on, give us the detail. You beat me up. I was being preemptively smug here because I thought I was going to win this. <sighs> so, you know I use Fastmail and know, use and love and have for a long time. For some fast yeah, mail. Yeah. I'll explain it to you in simple words. You can understand another time if you want. But the first email I've got in here is the 31st of October, 2002. So where are we now? That's a good 18 years worth of email going back. And it's the notification of the end of an eBay auction where I purchased a Sonic <laughs> Blue Pro Gear tablet. Now, I don't know if you remember those. Sonic Blue? What is that? Well, so it was a 4x3 tablet. I think probably eight or nine inches screen size with a resistive touch screen where you <laughs> pressed with a stylus. I think it ran a kind of an industrial OS, like a, a Linux or a Unix build, but you could put Windows on it. And so I obviously wanted to get into mobile computing and I bought this thing and I hacked Windows onto it. And there was a whole kind of enthusiast community getting these things working. And uh, yeah, I think that was probably one of the first bits of kit I bought specifically to mess around with, you know, rather than to use, but to actually play with. And uh, you know how some of those Lenovo tablets these days have a kind of a big bulbous hinge on them now, which sort of obscures a battery and Lenovo used them to stand them up. But these ones had this sort of big bulbous bulge on because they had these honking great batteries on the back. You actually had to stand it into a stand to charge up because it needed to be in there most of the time looking like a picture frame. Yeah, I had great, very fond memories of that. I plugged in a USB mouse and used it like a little desktop computer for a while. Wow. Very happy memories. I think £400, I think I paid for that. Gosh. I know. I think the thousands I've wasted on Toots that's now in, probably in a cupboard somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, 2002. But it's interesting, like the second email is me talking to a friend saying, oh, I've just moved to Fastmail. I think it's a really good service. <laughs> it just shows you how frequently I reevaluate my my service providers. <laughs> Have you found anything older, Rafe? I've just got back into stuff that's going back to about 2000 or so by going into a webmail service. I'm currently on a more recent laptop. I do have a desktop that I know has email going back a little bit further than that that's kind of archived in a version of Outlook, having carefully preserved the archive and brought it across. But I don't think I've looked at that in the last 
three or four years at least. Mm. And I think now I would probably take a decision about not worrying about that when that computer gets retired. And, you know, I can remember a time about worrying very much about being able to check back through email. And now it's just become so ephemeral for me. The data that I'd care much more about is some of the documents, which I do have stuff going back to kind of 97, when I basically first got access to a computer that I used on my own, and then photographs. I just had a look in Google Photos. Oh, let's do, let's do that. That's a good one, Google Photos. And for yeah. Google Photos, I go back to kind of 99, and that was some of the very first digital camera that I had. I think I've got before that. Let's have a look and see. I think there's also a few photos there from a Nokia 3650, which was one of the first camera phones that I owned. But looking at them, they're quite low resolution. But the actual digital camera was a Kodak digital camera. Kodak, remember them, eh? Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting to me. It's, it's interesting. still preserved there in the Exif photo. It was a <laughs> Kodak LS443. That's actually one of the slightly later ones. But I can remember it, it was a big, chunky thing. And I can remember being really impressed. It had a four megapixel camera, uh, so 2,448 times 1632 pixels. And the particular photo I'm looking at is from 2002. But that's a much more precious one to me because it's actually a picture of my old dog swimming in the lake, which she used to love doing. And so for me, actually, the way that Google Photos has made it dead easy for me to get back using the timeline mode and see some of those photos is way more valuable probably than some of the emails. But it's interesting, it's not kind of as far back as I might have expected. I mean, that's only 18, 20 years. It's funny, as you were saying that, I was just like, oh, I've got a backup of my first ever computer on my NAS and I've just searched through it and I've just found my... Have you? Yeah, so I've, well, I found my old computing course. But, but, Why? Well, not because I need it, but more because it's never been worth going through and deleting it. Like there was a time where I needed it. That's, I think I've got coursework as well. Yeah, well, from GCSEs or, or whatever, or A-levels. This is my university course, so this would date back to um, probably mid... 1970? Ooh, not that old. <laughs> probably 96, 97. Oh my gosh. Because I've got some stuff here from my second year of university, which would have been the academic year, 96, 97. But it's interesting, it's travelled, and I've, you know, I've got all those docs, and I've got all the coursework and the handouts and everything as well but it's all got a much later date. Obviously, I must have migrated it from one disk to another and, and updated the dates at some point. I was really sort of intrigued about, we're collecting all of this junk. I mean, look, I've got graphics I did for fun projects at university here. I've got, I think I've got my personal budget spreadsheet from 99-2000 here. So <laughs> I don't to think what's inside it. Probably still owe somebody something. But it was just really interesting, like how far back all this stuff goes. And then like, particularly you and you said, like, why have you got it? Mm. Well, my answer is, yeah. why not? Because you saved it five years ago and it was useful to you as a backup then. And then yes. you know, why would you ever delete it? But actually, like, do you spend any time going through getting rid of all of this stuff? I sometimes I get very annoyed with thinking, why have I got 73 gig of email? You know, and I will go through and get rid of all these news alerts and all these, you know, I just, why is it, I don't need that. But then, then it's too much cognitive load to think, why do I need that email from my dad, you know, um, seven years ago saying, you know, um, she, are, are, are you coming tonight? Like, just like, like, like Blanford, why do you need an invite? I mean, maybe that particular invite was a birthday, but, you know, if it's just some generic, why am I keeping that? And don't I need to age it and just have it delete? I wonder. I think this is something we all need to deal with at some point. What's the point in it? Yeah. 
So I'm up for some bragging rights. If you're listening and you're thinking, ha, 1997, I've got emails back from, you know, in the day. Why have you got them? Yeah, why? Exactly. Yeah. How have you found them? Do you use them? The whole topic actually made me think it's not worth me spending time deleting stuff, going through reviewing file by file. But actually, I might just go back like 10 years and say, delete all that stuff out of my inbox. Because effectively, I don't want it to resurface any of this stuff. You know, I've got previous jobs, yeah, friends I'm not in touch with anymore. I mean, sadly, you know, even email exchanges with people who've passed away or whatever. Mm-hmm. And just thinking like, you know, let's get all this dross, like stop the risk of it coming back. Because when I sit down and, okay, fast mail's not quite the same as Gmail, but when I sit down and type in a word, like I'm looking for, you know, oh, uh, flight costs, you know, I don't want the ones from 10 years ago to pop up or sort of like that. So I wonder at what point this will all start to be a real drag and a pain to manage. We need to talk about fast mail, by the way. Future episode. Yeah. Well, I can reassure you that somehow in January 1999, I spent £942 on a variety of toot. So there we go. (laughs) What, on eBay again? No, this was my total life budget. (laughs) Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) Including, um, oh gosh, £134 on petrol. There you go. So maybe there's nostalgia value in this. (laughs) Maybe there's, yeah, excellent. We will talk about fast mail. But the uh, glib throwaway answer is I don't mind Fastmail having 18 years of my life because they're not uh, mining it for advertising opportunities and selling it to other people. Well, neither is Google on my Google professional account. Let's revisit that. Okay, bit of fun. Write in if you've got older data than that. Let us know how you get on. Or do you have a really good uh, regime to manage it all? I use Hazel, which is an app on my Mac, which is really great for doing quick automations of when a file gets to this old or when a file goes into this folder, do this thing with it. And I use it to sort of do some really crude, quick cleanup routines to make sure my downloads folder doesn't get too chock-a-block and that kind of stuff. But I was listening to a productivity podcast the other day where people were writing vast, complicated rule sets to archive stuff off and manage it. So if you're one of those people who's super organized and coded it all into rules, um, drop us a line, let us know what you did and how. Okay, as ever, thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate all your kind comments and feedback. It's uh, great to be back. You can find us at 361podcast.com. You can find us at 361podcast on Twitter. If you go to 361podcast.com slash support, you can find out how to support the cost of producing the show from as little as $1 per episode. We're grateful for everyone's support. Appreciate at the moment that uh, quite a lot of people are in a position where they can't financially support, even if they'd like to. Completely understand that. And uh, we'd uh, also really appreciate an iTunes review if you're able to do that instead. That gets more eyeballs on the show. So we really appreciate all your support. Right, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of love. Always a pleasure. Mm. We will be back soon, probably, next week. Bye-bye. Okay. So, who's doing the intro this week? It would be me. Ah. Really? Mm-hmm. And Rafe Blanford. Are you ready to do it in zero takes? I am ready to do it in zero takes in true McLeod style. Thank you. Trendsetter. Are you ready to do it in zero takes because you spent the last five minutes of the last item writing it out in preparation? Possibly. <laughs> no, you didn't. Really? Sprung, Blanford. Oh, come on. I can read you like a book. Yeah. <laughs> Is it a good book? <laughs> well, after the um, extras we've had in the last few episodes, I didn't want to make a mess of it like I did last time because I don't need another bleeping from Mark. <laughs> that was pretty bad, that. I know. I'm pretty ashamed. And it was a perfectly good bleep, a really good bleep. I'm there. careful about not swearing.
So when I do, it's like quite annoying. That's why I think it's important we did mark it. So thanks for that, yeah. Mark. I yeah. really appreciated that particular outtake. Yes. Bad enough that I have Ben and Ewan undermining me nonstop. It's now <laughs> our lovely editor who makes us sound brilliant. And thank you for that, Mark. <laughs> I feel like it's now three on one. It used to be two on one. So it's just getting worse and worse and worse. I told Mark he was the fourth member of the team and I meant it literally. Like, get in there. Give, give Blanford a kicking. <laughs> give him a good kicking. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, Mark. <laughs> Make Blanford find one or two words and just put, put the bleep in there. So you, I don't want to bleeping. You know, it will be fantastic if you could try and There is no way I'm going to say something that has extraneous and extra words in it that Mark is able to identify for some bleeping things. So it sounds like I am unusually and against my true nature swearing all the time. There you go, Mark. Thought I'd do you a solid there. Come on, come on. Now that. I'm confident our dear listeners would think it was all a fix and they'd suddenly start realising the amount of uh, work that actually goes into the editing to make us sound smooth because it would be such against my nature. They'd go, oh, that must have been edited. A little hint for everyone listening to this, the whole podcast is edited. That's why we sound good. We're not actually like this in person. When you meet us in person, once lockdown and horrible viruses have gone away, we are not going to sound as coherent or as smooth or as interesting or as kind as we actually sound on the podcast. Thanks, Mark. You might also be overselling quite how coherent we sound, even with the help of a professional. This is very true as well, yeah. Okay, let's get this intro done then. Rafe Blanford. Zero takes, Blanford. No pressure. No swearing. Hello and welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile tech and the world around it. Indiegogo experiment and who has the oldest digital data in their archive. Boom. Like he's been practicing it. Say, slick, Rafe. Slick and professional. Can we do a little bit more energy or are we okay with that? I was okay with that. I mean, I'm looking at a man who hasn't got another 5% in him. No, I wasn't kidding. I was just, it was great. Blanford, well done. I mean, it was one take. I mean, admittedly not up to yeah. your zero takes, Ewan, but unfortunately, I don't think I can <laughs> replicate your levels of ability. I'm just amazed that you bought the zero take. This, that's why it's all about perception. You know, I just said zero takes and you guys are, yeah, 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 yeah. We, we've got to beat him. I don't actually think I did a zero take. Yeah. Did I tell you I've got a lot better at kind of faking <laughs> when I actually believe in something? Right then. Okay, gentlemen, anything else we need to talk about? No, we're good. Um, oh, I heard a joke. I heard a joke. Oh, damn it, I've lost it. Uh, what? I thought we were going to get away with this. Go on. What should you do if you're addicted to seaweed? I don't know. Sea kelp. Uh, uh, okay, that's quite good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so wait a minute. He's got some more. Go on in. Go on. Oh, fair enough. No, you look as though you've got more. Go on. You don't deserve my best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right then. Um, I'm afraid, sorry, I've got to run because... It's nine o'clock, you've got food. Well, there's food, but also you're going to like this. I'm carpeting the garden. Carpet... What? Um, so...